This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with Jeff Backus, veterinary technician and fellow podcaster. Jeff and his mate Dave host one of my favourite podcasts, The Vet Tech Cafe. So it was super fun to put him on the other side of the mic for a change. We talked about his career path from being a veterinary assistant in a GP practice to VTS in emergency and critical care. He's been quite involved with academia throughout his career too, having worked as adjunct professor and currently working at Tufts University, mainly in ICU. If you enjoy this episode, the dulcet tones of Jeff's voice and his considered insight, then make sure you head over to the Vet Tech Cafe and have a listen. As always, I'll put a link in the show notes or just search the Vet Tech Cafe in your podcast app. And you're welcome. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I'm, I'm really, really excited to be on. Excellent. Now, some listeners will be thinking, I know that voice. And maybe this next question will um, will make it clear where they may know your voice from. Um, do you listen to podcasts or do you maybe have your own podcast? <laughs> uh, you know, the funny thing is I'm, I'm actually not a huge podcast listener, um, but oh. I, I had the idea or the, the I guess, dream, if you will, of, of starting a podcast uh, probably like five or six years ago, and and I'm not very technologically advanced or inclined like with with this kind of stuff. So I, I thought about it, and I thought about what I would want to do, and I just never never really got going with it until about a year ago. And and uh, my my friend Dave Cowan and I were at a conference together at, at Ivex, and uh, we were sharing an Airbnb, and I had I had said like we were just talking about podcasts. He's a huge podcast listener, and I said you know I had this idea about starting one a few years ago, and and we just ran with it that night, and so we we started the Vet Tech Cafe that night at, at Ivex in Washington D.C. and kind of laid the foundation for it. And we've been doing that now ever since the last probably six or eight months. Um, so yeah, I I still I don't listen to very many. Um, I I listen to a few. I I do listen to your episodes, um, to Radio Vet Nurse, to the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. Um, the ones yep. I, I listen to are, are mostly in our field, the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Yep. Um, and there are a couple others, but um, but mostly it's 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 this, and um, you know I I just have have really come to enjoy it. Oh, nice. That's crazy that you really wanted to have a podcast and yet you weren't uh, much of a podcast listener. Are you Are you like me and you come from so, somewhat of an audio background and, and music and that sort of thing? Yeah, music for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I was, you know, I played video games a little bit and I just never really got into like this aspect of things. And a coworker of mine at the time, we worked overnights together. Um, and he always had a podcast on in the background and, and all, yeah. all manner of different, you know, some, a lot of the pod, popular podcasts, if you will, from five or six years ago. Yeah. 
And I, you know, it was just like listening to a story or an audio book. And I was like, man, this is really cool. And at the time, uh, I didn't know of anything and, and maybe there were a couple, but I certainly didn't know anything about veterinary medicine podcasts that were out at the time. And, mm. and, um, and so I was like, you know, maybe this would be a, a really cool thing. And I, I, I talked to him about, cause he's very technical about how to, you know, do this. And, and I just, I never did anything with it. And, and I'm glad we finally did. And, and the funny thing is, is that, um, when, when we kind of started this, we were, we were wanting to see, is this already like a saturated market? Like, does what we want to do with a podcast kind of already exist? And, you know, are people actually going to listen? And we searched veterinary technician podcasts high and low, but we always search veterinary technician podcasts. Yes. And it wasn't until we got started <laughs> and I, and I, I, we, we started talking about veterinary nurses and we searched veterinary nurse podcasts and radio vet nurse was the first one to to come up and you know that's when we reached out to you and so thank you for all your help and guidance kind of along the way that you've given to us because it's it's been a lot of fun but uh but yeah it's 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 very different and, and we're still obviously learning as we go but um but we're having a lot of fun with it and that's it you just have to start and you you know i still learn if i listen back to early episodes and i you know i was using different programs or maybe the audio quality wasn't so good or or maybe i had more questions and now I've narrowed them. So it was nice when you guys reached out and you're like, oh, we found you. We weren't searching nurse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even tonight, you know, just just before we came on, you know, you gave us another another trick that I, I can't wait to tell Dave about to employ in our future uh, recordings. So yeah, just, you know, learning all the time. And like you said, yeah. trying different programs and formats and what have you. And, um, you know, it is kind of fun to, to geek out a little bit about it and talk to other people that are, are doing it as well. And, um, you know, see what they're doing and, and what have you. So yeah, we've got a little gang and anyone yeah. who is interested can listen to our episode where we all discussed um, coronavirus when it was mm -hmm. first happening. So that yes. was um, Internal Medicine for Vet Tech's podcast and um, you guys, Vet Tech Cafe and Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds and Radio Vet Nurse. So that was yeah. our mega episode, which was so much fun. Oh, and the guys uh, from yeah. Two Vets Talk yeah. Pets. How can yeah. I forget uh, my Aussie <laughs> friends? And um, and yeah, if anyone wants to check out um, your podcast, I will make sure I put a link to the Vet Tech Cafe as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So can you tell us where are you from and where do you currently live? Yes. Uh, so I'm originally from Southern California, um, pretty much halfway between LA and San Diego. Um, so kind of near the beach and Grew up there and lived there uh, until about four years ago. My wife, is, my now wife, is a veterinarian. Uh, she graduated from Tufts University in 2018. And, uh, you know, when she first year, second year student, she was able to come home for spring breaks and Christmases and all those kinds of things. But then as she got into clinics, um, you know, her time away from school was basically non-existent. Um, so I had also always wanted to work in academia, um, and so I decided to uh, move out here to New England, so literally as far away and still be in the continental United States pretty much from home as I could be, um, and uh, came out here the summer before her third year, and so uh, I lived in Massachusetts in the town where the vet school is in Grafton, Massachusetts. Uh, for about two years, and now her and I live in Rhode Island. I still commute to Tufts, which is about an hour and 10 minutes away, but we live in Rhode Island. She works here at a specialty clinic uh, just down the road, um, and then we are actually moving back to Southern California in about three months. We're going back to where, uh, where we're from originally, and I'm going to kind of set up shop out there for a little while at least, so... 
Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. I have a rough map of America in my mind. I've got cousins in um, Georgia and okay. South Carolina and that's okay. the area. Yeah. All I know of New England is I feel like that might be Stephen King country. Is yes, that right? Yes, very much so. Yes, yes. So uh, Southern California, if you kind of picture the, the U.S. as a big rectangle, um, Southern California, where I'm from, is the very lower left corner, and New England, where I'm at now, is the very upper right corner. So, <laughs> <laughs> kind of can't get any further away from home than that. But, um, but it's it's been. I mean, it's so different here. I'm, I'm sure you know you can, uh, on some level, relate to different areas of uh, of Australia. But uh, Southern California is very temperate. It's you know. Um, what I will say is 75 degrees Fahrenheit and mild mm-hmm. uh, year round. But up here we get winter and snow and summer thunderstorms mm. and stuff that we don't get in Southern California and the fall colors. And it's, so it's, it's a very, very different experience. And I'm really, really glad that I made the choice to, to come out here for a few years because it's just it's been fantastic. Well, that's exciting. And so we have some common ground here too, because we're both married to vets. (laughs) We're both musicians. We both have a podcast. So I'm ticking a few little boxes here going, huh, there we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how did you get your start with vet, well, being a veterinary technician? And I should say, uh, we will interchange the word technician and vet nurse. And I often see people saying, what's the difference? And in Australia there is a different qualification to be a veterinary technician and it's a bachelor of qualification and the veterinary mm. nursing qualification is usually a certificate. Um, but when we're talking in terms of the US and Australia or even um, the UK, it's more so that nursing is a protected term in the States. Is that right? So yes. you guys can't actually say you're a veterinary nurse um, Cor- because the human nurses have that one in the bag and they're not sharing. Correct, correct. And there's, there is a, a veterinary nurse initiative um, that our national technician organization, NAVTA, which is the um, Nor- uh, National Association of Veterinary Technicians in America, um, they've kind of come out with the last couple of years of a veterinary nurse initiative, uh, trying to go state to state and, and um, you know, work with the nurses associations and, and try to change the title because it's what the nursing or what's what the, you know, public at large recognizes that we're doing. They recognize the term nurse and so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. you know, we are veterinary technicians, but in each state, um, you know, some, t- some states like uh, where I'm from in California, we are what we call RVTs, um, registered veterinary yes. technicians, where I am yes. now we use CVT or certified veterinary technicians. There's LVT, there's LVMT. So it's so different state to state. So, you know, it's, it's, it's as much about, you know, the terminology as it is about, you know, a unified title and standardization and, and a whole bunch of things. So yeah, a little bit, a little bit different. Yeah, we're on the same path too because Western Australia has had uh, mandatory registration for a while, but then we now have the AVNAT scheme, which is an Australia-wide registration. So we also have um, RVTs and RVNs, so registered oh. veterinary nurses and registered veterinary technicians, and uh, that's something that we're sort of um, trying to to really push forward. But one thing I do like about the states is that um, if we can just go further down this little wormhole, sure. is um, that you guys have. Um, the differentiation between vet techs and veterinary assistants. Is that the right terminology? Yes, yes, we do. And there are some states that have certification programs for what we call CVA or certified veterinary assistants. But a veterinary assistant is essentially any unregistered personnel. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, you know, the RVT, CVT, LVT, those are those that are registered with the state that have taken qualifying exams or whatever it is. Um, and so we do have, you know, veterinary assistants and, and there are many, 
uh, veterinary assistants that have been in the field for, you know, 20 years or more um, that mm. just never went through the school to get registered. And they're, they're mm-hmm. are, they are fantastic. Um, That's you right. know, and, and then they, you know, they do, you know, education for, you know, those that are, are, you know, newer RVTs, if you will. So, um, they are invaluable. Mm. Absolutely. I was just going to say an absolutely invaluable part to the Mm. practice and to the profession. And I think that's a big part of it too, is making sure that, you know, with whatever changes are made that we absolutely can't alienate that group of people because they, they are, you know, there, there are so many areas of the country where there just aren't registered techs available and they fulfill that role and they are the backbone of those practices and and we absolutely Mm. need them so yeah it's there is a little bit of a differentiation there same in uh, regional areas of australia like for me it's very hard to attract qualified veterinary nurses so i've actually adopted that terminology in my own practice of i now use the term veterinary assistants or vas Mm -hmm. and qualified veterinary nurses or qvns and it's mostly so that um, for one, I can retain um, young student vet nurses who start during the study, but if it becomes too much and they drop out, they're often compelled to quit altogether right. if they can't be someone who's going to be a QVN. And I have now have this new role that I say, just go back to study later or never go back to study. It doesn't matter. You can be a VA. Um and it's just a slightly different level of responsibility and skill set, but, you know, very similar and still really important to us. And it also helps the vets differentiate between, you know, we can't always have a qualified veterinary nurse assisting with anesthesia, but at least the vet knows if they're working with a QVN as opposed to a VA or right. indeed an RVN, they know that um, maybe with a, a VA, they should just say, is there blink, is there jaw tone? Whereas if they're working with a qualified or a registered veterinary nurse, then they might get a little more assistance. Yeah, I sort of like to use that because otherwise in Australia, what happens sometimes is that we um, just call everybody a veterinary nurse, whether they're qualified, whether they've done the study or whether they are two months into the job and they've got no study behind them. Or as you say, this middle ground of 20 years experience, but no study, but lots of life and work experience. So I think it's good to sort of um, be putting people into these cohorts sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and many states in the U.S., uh, of course, on varying degrees of strength, have title protection for veterinary technicians or vet techs or RVTs or any of those monikers. And some states are really good about enforcing that. And, you know, if you know, a, a clinic in one of those states is looking, you know, say posting an ad, they're very specific about, you know, they want a, a veterinary assistant or, or a credentialed veterinary technician. Um, yeah. In other states, you know, it's, it's a little bit muddier, they don't have title protection, and then, you know, that can get a little bit sticky. But, um, mm. but some states are really good about that and, and kind of already have that where they, you know, again, not necessarily to say one is better than the other or anything like that, but it's, it's that, you know, you're fulfilling this role or you're fulfilling that role. And as you said, um, so that the people in the practice, the doctors or whoever it may be, the clients, they know, you know, sort of the levels of, of where people are at and, um, mm. you know, it is something that can definitely help. Yeah, that's right. And I, I call any of my nurses who are studying, I, I, call them VAs as well or veterinary Mm -hmm. assistants too so but um, I mean as you've raised a really important point which is that we shouldn't alienate that group or make them feel substandard because we often say within my practice when I'm talking to um, my veterinary nurse who's responsible for staff training with me we always say, you know, we need them as they need us. The, yeah. the, the nurses who are going through their studies, yes, they need us to teach them things um, and we might need to show them things every day, but we also need them. Right, <laughs> We right. need them 
to help walk all these post-op patients and, you know, help us with the monitoring and help us with getting the kits ready and and that sort of thing. So um, everybody has their own vital role to play. Absolutely. And it's something that's really important to me because I I didn't start uh, veterinary technician school until I was already a veterinary assistant for about 12 years. Ah. Um, So I had been, you know, in that role for a long time in the hospital that I worked at. Um, The owner of that hospital trained us very well. Like, I mean, we were all what I would still to this day say very competent technicians. We we knew a lot for, for, by letter of the law, would be veterinary assistants. Um, It just... It wasn't, you know, till down the road that I realized I wanted to, I wanted more. I wanted to become registered and, and ultimately specialize and what have you. So, I, you know, I completely understand the value of those that, you know, decided, you know, school wasn't necessarily for them or what, you know, mm. life, life situations or whatever it may be. But they're still really, really, really good, um, you know, assistants and technicians and so on and so forth. So it's something that I, I definitely, you know, can relate to because. You know, I I was well into it before I decided to go back to school to do it. So, yeah. And were you a veterinary assistant straight from school? And was that always the dream or was it a fluke or how did that all come about? So when I was in high school, um, where I'm from, we had a program. It was basically like an after school program where, um, you know, it was an additional high school course. Uh, and it, it actually counted as two classes. So senior year of high school, um, you know, normally where you would have to take six classes, I could take an after school program and just take five classes and this other and basically get credit for two. Okay. Um, and so they had, you know, everything from automotive to uh, medical assisting to uh, veterinary assisting to, you know, a whole bunch of different programs. And so, you know, I as you know kind of the normal kid loved animals and you know just that whole thing so I was like well I'll I kind of want to take one less class so I'll give this a try (laughs) and of course you know yeah of course they you know they they called it um like you know basically veterinary technician education we never talked about you know assistant versus technician or any of that but Mm -hmm. it was like six weeks in class um and then as part of the the curriculum was uh, a work externship and so then it was, you know, whereas class was normally five days a week, uh, four days a week became volunteering at an animal hospital, um, and then one day a week of still classroom, and that was an entire semester. Uh, right. And then they hired me on afterwards, and I actually, you know, I'm still really, really good friends with the owner of that clinic, and when I go home, I still do relief for that clinic here now, 25 years later. Um, oh, that's so lovely. And so that's kind of where I started. It was, you know, general practice. Um, and then I moved from there into emergency and critical care and, you know, on down the line. But that's kind of how I got started. It was, I would say, more of a fluke thing than anything. Um, mm. But it but it certainly worked out. <laughs> that's excellent. And where are you working now? I am currently at Tufts University. Um, I work in the ECC department, the emergency and critical care. I spend probably 90 to 95% of my time or my shifts in the ICU as opposed to the ER, but our department staffs both rooms. I mean, they're separated by a swinging door, so it's, you know, we work hand in hand, but I mostly f- spend most of my time in ICU. Um, and then, then, you know, my last shift was ER, but I've been in ER probably two shifts this year, so not very much. But yeah, so I'm in academia. And then when I go back to California, I think I'm going to get back, haven't 100% made up my mind, but 
Um, I will probably either go back to teaching veterinary technician education. I was an adjunct professor for about seven years before I came out here, and I really yeah. enjoyed that and kind of missed that. Um, and then I'll probably still, you know, do some part-time or relief here and there because, um, as one of our guests said previously, we all need to stab jugulars from time to time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, that feels good. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> oh, man, that's awesome. How did you bridge the gap between being this um, veterinary assistant for 12 years in a general practice to being adjunct prof- professor and working in academia at Tufts? Like, what happened in the middle there? Yeah, so um, I ultimately, the, the clinic I was working at, the general practice, um, you know, one summer I did relief, actually, relief and and had like one or two scheduled shifts a week at the local overnight and weekend ER. And I had kind of, I guess you could say peaked in my uh, amount of of education or training I could get at the general practice I was at. And then once I saw emergency and was not necessarily learning more, but just learning all sorts of new things, a whole new facet to the the profession that I didn't really get to see much of. And so about a year later, I, I made the swap where I went to the emergency clinic full time and then just worked like one or two shifts a week of, of general practice and really, really enjoyed that. And a couple of years into that, um, in California, we have what's called an alternate route path to licensure. So if you've been a veterinary assistant for what is the equivalent of, of three years of full time work, you could go to school, but it was not a, a two year um, like AVMA or nationally accredited program, but there were programs throughout the state that required a, um, a lesser education component in terms of number of hours in the classroom. And they would combine that then with the experience that you already had, and you could then take the state examination. And so the hospital that I worked for um, put us, put a, a, several of us through the local school, which was, you know, just a couple towns away, uh, to get our licenses in the state of California. Um, and those licenses, it's the same credential, it's an RVT, but because we, you know, used a, a, an alternate route of, of education, that license doesn't often transfer to other states very easily because we didn't graduate from a nationally accredited school, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, so I did that. Um, and then, you know, within a couple of years of that, I decided that I really liked emergency and critical care and wanted to specialize. Um, and you know, all the while in there, the idea of academia had always really appealed to me, but the only university we had or or vet school that we had was UC Davis in California. And that was 500 miles away, all the way at the other end of the, of the state. So it wasn't necessarily something I was just going to move, move away to go do. And it was, but it was an area of the, of the field that I, I thought that, you know, just always appealed to me, like the upper echelon of veterinary medicine, where all the the research is done and all the cool, you know, toys and, you know, just really crazy cases and so on and so forth. And, and then it just kind of came together with, with my wife being at school here in New England and, and, you know, coming out here, it was like, you know, just a perfect confluence of ways to, to get into academia. But I was really surprised. I, I, I was even kind of intimidated coming to, to academia thinking even as a, as a VTS, like, do I, do I know enough? Do I, have enough skills? Do I, you know, all of those kind of imposter syndrome type mm. things. And, and I, and I realized shortly thereafter that, 
you know, honestly, a vet school is a kind of place where there is literally something for everybody, no matter your level of education or, or experience in the field, because there's, there's lower level treatment wards, there's, you know, there's ER or specialty services, but I mean, we mm. hire, you know, we have an internship program with like local vet tech schools where they can come, you mm. know, and shadow and volunteer. And, you know, those that this is their first job in, in veterinary medicine all the way up to, you know, like, like I was where I'd been in the field over 20 years by the time I got there. Mm. Um, and, and so it was, you know, it was really nice to kind of see that, that, that actually it isn't necessarily this quote unquote exclusive club. There is actually mm. something for everyone, you know, in the field, if they have that mm. interest in specialty or, or what, what have you, um, it has actually a, a really, really achievable and attainable opportunity. And are you VTS in emergency and critical care? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I often talk about this on social media to, to radio vet nurse, um, listeners that, what we're seeing in Australia, I don't know if it's the same in the States, is um, business, veterinary businesses seem to be niching down and general practices in cities have 24-hour emergency clinics that they can refer to after hours. So what we're seeing is any case that presents to a general practice but maybe needs to be overnighted or maybe needs um, a blood product to be administered will get transferred to um, the emergency practice, which is great in a way for keeping our vets and indeed our nurses um, nice and fresh and not worn down from dealing with after hours all night and doing a cesarean at 3 a.m. and then back to work at 8 a.m. Yeah. Um, but in the one sense, some of these general practice nurses and techs aren't getting to do much except for um, just assisting with general consults and, and you know, spays and castrates and that sort of thing. So I sort of – I love uh, working in a remote general practice because we still get to see all of the exciting cases that, of course, you're not happy that this is happening to your patient, but it's cool and sure. we're getting to do a cool workup and cool treatment. So I say to a lot of those people, um, if you're working in a general practice that has really niched down and you do refer a lot to your emergency centre, can you do a shift once a fortnight just to – um, keep your hand in, and as you say, keep stabbing jugulars every now and again. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great point too, because um, where I am at, at Tufts University, we're about an hour west of of Boston, which is you know the major metropolitan city around. And uh, for you know, if you think about Tufts as as one area on a map, there really isn't another specialty or referral center within an hour in any direction. So mm. a, there's a lot of general practices in the area that you know, oh, this, this cat has a urethral obstruction, go to Tufts or your, yep. you know, your, your dog is vomiting. It might be a foreign body, go to Tufts for an ultrasound. And so we get a lot of this I'll almost, I'm, I'm going to refer to it as overflow that we mm -hmm. really feel like a lot of general practices, you know, should, and probably could handle with ease. Mm. Um, mm. but it's it, especially right now in, in the time of COVID, I think it's more just, you know, a lot of that emergency stuff ultimately just funnels, you know, because there, there really is nowhere else to go in terms of specialty or emergency care around it funnels to us. And it's just, it's been an overwhelming few months in, in that regard. And I, I, there's so much that I do feel like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, there are, there are those that, you know, this thing comes to us and it's had this tremendous work up at the at the primary care and you know and then it's like okay I, I can't really do anything more with this now it's your turn mm. but there's mm. so many that it's just it's just like oh you know 
you get that five o'clock in the afternoon call. My dog is vomiting. Oh, well, you know, it could be a foreign body. Just, just go to Tufts. And it's, it's sometimes it's, it's a little bit, a little bit frustrating too on that end, because it's something we don't necessarily need on our plate. Like you guys could totally do it, Mm. but I, I, I completely understand the other side of it too. Yeah, I I was amazed to speak to some veterinary nurses at conference a couple of years back here and they were saying even rodenticide toxicity and a basic, you know, plasma transfusion Mm -hmm. or something like that. And I was like, what? You don't do that. And they they were saying, no, anything that needs any kind of transfusion, we don't touch or anything that needs any kind of overnighting, we don't do. Um, And so, yeah, I was like, oh, those are kind of the interesting ones that, you know, we have like a group chat at work that we are always uploading photos and updates on how those patients are doing because one person will nurse them on one day, but they might not work the next day. And everyone's Mm -hmm. like, oh, how's Scruffy or whatever. So, you know, they're the cases that that are interesting and that we all get invested in too. So um, what's your favorite part of your job? You know, honestly, being in academia, I, I, I've really taken to enjoy teaching the veterinary students. Um, and it's, it's such a different niche of, of veterinary medicine working in academia and having what I, what I, the, the only doctors that I re- work with, um, I, I refer to them as fetal doctors. So those that are the veterinary students that haven't graduated and become doctors yet, the, 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 the baby doctors, which are the interns, the ones that just graduated and then fetal residents yeah, and then the residents that I call toddler doctors. Um, but those are the only doctors I work with. I mean, we have faculty, but they don't necessarily take the cases and you know, they're, they're just kind of there for oversight and support. And so, yeah. You know, a huge part of my job is actually, um, I, I mean, I'm going to say oversight, but not necessarily checking in on, on patient orders, you know, that the, that the students or the interns or residents put in. But, you know, oftentimes they put in orders and a, de- and a decimal point is wrong or a, yeah. a calculation is wrong or whatever. And that actually yeah. does fall back to us quite a bit. And so it's really, it is, you know, in those kind of moments to take the student aside or the intern or the resident aside and say, hey, like, you know, I, I know like your plate is just as full as mine, but like there are going to be people that aren't going to catch this. And do you, know, you mean point eight or point right, zero eight? Right. And so, you know, some of that is a lot of fun. And just, yeah. you know, when, whether, when you're teaching students, even, even when I was teaching in the classroom and teaching vet tech students, when they have that aha moment, like the light bulb comes on and you can see, mm. you know, their facial reaction. Um, yeah. Though that's always just great because I mean, honestly, I've been doing this 25 years. Like I don't, I don't get too excited anymore about, you know, particular cases. There are certainly some things that I still really gravitate towards, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't need to be placing catheters anymore or drawing blood mm. anymore. I, I more enjoy watching those that haven't done it or, or doing it for the first mm. time and, and get that rush of excitement that I used to get. And so that's still really, really fun. And I get to do that, I think more in academia than I did in, in private practice. And so that, that's, that's, that's really cool to see, especially veterinary students that, you know, they may, there are some that, um, you know, in the first year or two of their education, you know, maybe they work a summer, um, as a summer job in the ER, or, you know, they, they have treatment shifts from time to time and and to see them grow from a first year to a graduating student and getting their internships or residencies and, and that kind of stuff. It's, it's really, really cool to see the growth um, and, and now that I've been there four years, um, the, 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 unfortunately the class that just graduated, um, you know, in, in, 
in this time of COVID. They're the first ones that I've had or that I've seen their entire four years to, for some of them. And mm. it's been really cool to kind of see that growth and, and um, see their progression. So that's, that's been a lot of fun. So you like watching your babies grow up. Yeah, that's really nice. I guess I guess that's what it comes down to. From fetus to toddler to toddling out that door and yes. ready to draw up the Going correct amount of Going off into the world and, and <laughs> go doing their thing wherever it is. And, yeah. and people like you stay in, in, the, in the minds of these uh, vets because I know I did another interview with Carol Bradley who um, works at the University of Melbourne in a similar role and so many people reach out to me about that um, episode and vets who are listening reach out and say Carol taught me at Uni of Melbourne she's the best and so I know that um, you have a really special role in the careers and development of these vets but it's interesting what you say about catching those little mistakes and we all need to be watching for those all the time like one of our questions in our training modules um, they're they're usually written questions but one of the questions that we have um, just says draw up 0.08 mil of water for injection and it it gives like an, an anecdotal scenario Um, or a hypothetical scenario and then it says um, so would this injection draw it up and then would this be given subcutaneous or IM and that's like the red herring part of the question and the real part is can you draw up 0.08 not 0.8 and so and and yeah it's it's a good little aha moment if they do draw up 0.8 and you're like congratulations you just overdosed the patient times 10. Right, right. Um, And they're like, oh, but I was thinking about this other bit. And it's like, yeah, well, we're all thinking about 50 billion things all the time. And if the vets ask you to draw up 0.08 adipamazole, then you better draw up 0.08 and it it will stay with them. But also like I've known even this year, one of our nurses to pick up um, one of the vets mistakes and she just knew like oh I don't think she means two mil I think she means 0.2 mil and you know Mm -hmm. went and and checked so we 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 can be this really good um I mean it can't be relied upon but we can be this really good safeguard I think for our vets when they're really busy absolutely absolutely and you know one thing I, I try to talk to students about from time to time as well is is the veterinarian and technician or nurse relationship and interaction? Um, you know, I you've probably heard as well. And I don't know if it's you know necessarily uh, um, you know as big of a problem in Australia, but there are some that you know maybe just don't look at at their technician or, or nursing staff at, you know as as they should, if if I mm. may, and and you know and vice versa and vice versa absolutely mm. and so mm-hmm. you know just just trying to you know work on that relationship and and not say you know not be of the mindset or of the attitude like haha i caught your mistake like you know this is what no. can happen but like actually like this is what this is how it can be if we work together and are constructive and support each other and and what have you and and, and you know that's i think that's a really really important especially these days but that's a really really important concept to me is is veterinarian technician relation or nurse relationship because um you know if it's adversarial uh just i mean nothing good is going to come of that and you know if we can get to them and, and instill in them while they're veterinary students like when they're veterinary students and on clinics they, I mean, it's it's not like a normal hospital. I mean, we we have we have client service representatives, but they have a little bit different role, and the veterinary technicians have a little bit different role because the students do so much, and and 
it doesn't yeah. really project out into what I will call like a, a, a you know a regular general practice or a regular. You've got a lot more time practice. on your hands as well, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and so it's you know when you get out into those roles, like are we actually setting them up for that? And it's 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 nice yeah. to be able to to kind of say like when you get out into the real world, this is how it's going to be, and like you know take these steps and do these things and, and actually foster a good relationship instead of, you know, going the other way. So that's, that's, I think, an important role too. You see on social media this undercurrent of nurses and techs saying, oh, my vets won't, won't consider this suggestion or they won't let me do this or that. And, and I, I know a lot of um, guests that I've had on the show, we've talked about how we really want to stay right away from that and, and have this top-down um, influence, I guess, uh, in saying, no, we need to all work together and we can't be speaking about each other in that way. And the vice versa is I've heard at conferences over the years, I've actually heard um, veterinary nurses and techs up giving lectures to rooms full of nurses saying, now, if your vet wants to give fluids at this rate, do not let your vet do this. Or if your vet wants to use this treatment protocol for this um, indication, don't let them do that. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, please don't phrase it like that. Like, yeah. you know, like, yeah. um, and, and it should never be approached in that way. You know, you can go back and say, oh, can we, can I, you know, forward you this summary of ideas I brought back from conference and, you know, these papers that come with it or whatever, but you can't, you know, come back storming into work saying you shouldn't do this. This is old, you know, nobody does this anymore. It's bad. So yeah, we definitely could work on that relationship, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, I think there's so much, as, as you said, from the top down and it, that that really starts in in their life as veterinary students that we can instill in them, you know, not so much education and anatomy and surgery and all of these things, but actually like hospital functionality and, and how to, you know, relate with your coworkers and your staff and work as a team that I, I don't, I don't know that honestly gets conveyed very well. And I mean, I'm sure on some level it is, but, um, but then I, I see, you know, the, the flip side of that where, you know, like you were saying, you know, in, in these groups and on social media and stuff where people talk about things in this way and it's, it's like, okay, well clearly that I guess really isn't happening. And, and that's something I, I do think globally we need to, to work on is, not just their education and their their practical or clinical experience, but also like, you know, when they're in when we're in clinic environment, like that's the time they need to learn, you know, is while they're in school. That's I think the best time to do it. So definitely, definitely just learning to be a human. And in Australia, mm-hmm. some vets are graduating at age, you know, twenty three or something, you know, to yeah. me they're yeah. They're toddler toddler graduates, yeah. as you're saying, but they're also babies. I'm I like, know, oh. I know. Yeah. When I was your age, I was just getting hammered and going to gigs. And yeah. look at you, you're a doctor. <laughs> yeah, and now it's it's you know I'm at the I'm at the point that you know they're graduating at an age that's you know basically the same number of years that I've been you know as working as a veterinary technician, yep. and it's it's just like oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man, we're getting yeah. on. Yeah. Now, um, if I can just digress from this, um lovely tangent we've been on what is your routine when you wake up in the morning how are you setting yourself up for the day so you know I I work second shift and so I I I work till 11 o'clock I usually get home after my commute about 12 15 or so in the morning and I'm I I can't go right to bed I need to wind down a little bit watch a little tv have a beer whatever and so I I typically you know go to bed at two and I sleep till about 10 and then I honestly 
to get ready for my day. Uh, my wife is usually at work, um, unless it's a day off, but I, I just kind of veg out. I do a little bit of social media, maybe some work for the podcast. Um, if there was a, a ball game from the night before, I'll watch that recording. I'll just kind of like try not to get too mentally invested in anything that then I'm yeah. going to think about or be distracted by mm-hmm. for my work day. There's a lot of things, you know, whether it's, um, you know, I'll use health things as an example or, or, you know, emails I have to respond to or whatever it may be. I try to wait till my days off to, because, you know, the, the schedule that I work, I don't have normal people hours, I will say, um, <laughs> to, 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 to work on those kinds of things. So I just kind of like put those off till my days off to try to keep my headspace clear for just going to work because it's, it's 10 hours of just wall to wall chaos sometimes. And I just need to focus on that and get to work and get home from work and then (laughs) get to my weekend. (laughs) Yeah, that is a very good strategy. I do. I do something similar. And do you have any weekly or daily habit that makes your life better aside from, you know, as you're saying, I guess, triaging your emails and your messages (laughs) and whatnot saying, okay, there'll be a day for that. Today's not the day. Today's finish work and have a beer and watch the ball game time. But what else do you have that makes your life better? Um, you know, honestly, I I will say that something that's come up the last several months since we've been doing it is, is our podcast. And, and for me right now, it's in a professional sense, in terms of veterinary medicine, it is my 100%, my greatest, uh, form of professional satisfaction at this point. I, I love, um, getting on social media and, and, you know, talking about different things. I love setting up, you know, what interview we're going to do or or chatting with Dave about different directions we're going to go or different ideas that we have. And that's actually been really invigorating to me. Um, and so that's something that I really enjoy daily is, is even though we don't necessarily, we don't record every day or release every Mm. day or anything like that, but there is probably, at least one little thing that I would say we, we talk about almost daily. And, and that's something that, you know, kind of gets my head away from, from the chaos of being in clinic or, um, you know, anything else is go, that is going on. And it's something that I, you know, in a professional sense that I really enjoy right now. And so that's, that's really been good because, um, you know, I, I was struggling a little while with, with the clinical aspect for, for a little bit and just having that, and I needed something else and that, the podcast has certainly taken that for me and, and given me another form of release and just looking at so many different things in the field. And it's, it's really been reinvigorating. So that, that I would say is probably the biggest thing right now. I will absolutely second that. I've had the same, the same unexpected or, you know, unplanned outcome or um, I guess a little benefit that, that I wasn't expecting and I guess connecting with all of these people in the field and, and as you say having new ideas and being invigorated so yeah having a podcast is great yeah <laughs> can, can <laughs> confirm 100% <laughs> can confirm I second that now do you have any strange habits or superstitions you know it's interesting I I, I don't know that I certainly in a professional sense I don't think that I do um but there are certainly things I, I think in my personal life that I do. I, I think probably the one thing that comes to mind is when I'm, I'm refilling the gas in my car. Um, I will always, after the, the pump clicks off and it's supposedly done filling, I will always top off three times. 
<laughs> You're and, lying. You can take more. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, I, I always get in, you know, an extra gallon and a half or, or two gallons doing that. And, and for me, for, for my commute, that's, that's, you know, essentially an extra trip to work or home from work that I don't have to stop for gas. So oh, I don't, classic. I don't even know how I fell into that to that pattern because I, I don't have a, a thing with numbers or threes or if anything, yeah. I usually like even numbers better, but for some reason, three clicks at the gas pump is, <laughs> is, is, is it. And I, I, I just, I stand by that. <laughs> it's fantastic. I wonder what that says about your expectations of yourself and others. Like, oh, I, yeah. Beep, beep, beep. That's the limit. No, it's not. More, more, for sure. more. Now we're good. For sure. For sure. There's probably some <laughs> deeply rooted, you know, thing, you know, something that we can do more, we can take more, we can take more on or, or what have you. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's an excellent one. Now, can you think of a purchase made by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet tech life in recent memory? Uh, that's a good question. Um, in terms of clinic life, um, you know, we, we've gotten some new equipment recently. I don't think it necessarily impacts me directly, but we've, we've upgraded our MRI and, and we're in the process of upgrading our fluoroscopy unit. And that definitely allows us to, you know, care better for our neurologic patients or, or, you know, other patients that are getting fluoro or what have you. But, um, some things that I've, I've kind of, come to like recently um our anesthesia department has them our our we we really don't an ecc but we steal them all the time our um a little portable uh pulse ox and um temperature mo uh, monitoring device it's called a, a vet coder by centier i don't know if you guys have those down there or not but i've not heard of it they're just like little, I mean, they're smaller than a, than a cell phone, um, uh -huh. but they're, you know, they're just portable ECG monitors and pulse oxes that you can, you know, just leave cage side and you can Bluetooth it to, you know, a, a, a tablet if you have that or, or what have oh, you. Wow. Just, just to, again, a, you know, a nice little thing that kind of, you can still be monitoring the patient, but you know, when you probably shouldn't be walking away, but you can and go do other things that you also have to do and still yep. be, you know, clued into what's going on. So, you know, it's just those little technology things. I know I said earlier, I, I'm not great with technology, but I do love gadgets. I just don't know how they work. Um, <laughs> and so I think that's something that's super cool that I've, I've definitely seen around the hospital that, um, you know, that we utilize from time to time. And like I said, it's, they're not in our department, they're in the anesthesia department, but we steal some, them sometimes at night and, and use them when we need to. So <laughs> steal them at night. Yes. Guys, what's that out in the car park? <laughs> Uh, classic. I'll have to put a link to that in the show notes and look at it myself because I know, um, I know, I can see the use. Even we get a lot of um, tick paralysis cases where we're oh, located, yeah. and and mm -hmm. so we are often wanting to, you know, just keep an eye on saturation and that sort of thing. So I can see the how handy that would be to have yeah. and not be, you know, lugging the equipment from the surgery and and right. whatnot. So. Um, I agree. I, I also love gadgets, but um, sometimes I'm a little bit like, how does that work? <laughs> if it's beyond a remote control, I'm a little bit out of my depth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I like Apple products because I don't know, you know, I don't have to go in and do, you know, a lot of upgrades or different things. And so, you know, with the podcast, there's so much to it that it's like, 
I, there's probably a better way to do this, but I don't know what it is. And, and so, you mm. know, with some of these gadgets and things that are pretty self-sufficient, it's, it's great to just be able to, to do it and <laughs> walk away. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and I think if you're scared of gadgets, you, the more you stay away from them, the more scared you become and the yeah. more, um, out of touch you become. So it is super important to just, yeah. um, you know, go do a YouTube search. Like, how do you do this? And you yeah. will find someone on YouTube who will tell you and you'll be like, oh, that wasn't so scary. Um, and just, you know, keep, keep your hand in or it does become more and more petrifying. And then you become like my dad who doesn't have an FPOS card or a mobile phone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of these things now are, are you know, they, they're, they're so small and, you, you know, you may think like, this can't be, you know, this can't be accurate or this can't be useful or what have you. But the, the technology that, that is actually driving that tiny little device is probably more powerful than is what is driving the 30 year old EKG that might be sitting on the shelf that, you know, yes. this old reliable or old standby. Yes. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, you just kind of have to shift your mindset a little bit and, and embrace it. <laughs> And I don't know about vets in the States, but in Australia, when I first joined this industry, I had come from working as a lawyer and I couldn't believe how dated a lot of the systems were. Like, you know, we were all paperless working in law, um, but the, the, the practice in vet seemed to be very much paper-based and physical files sometimes. And um, but f- using using fax machines, you know, when I first <laughs> opened this vet clinic with my husband, he's like, yes, we need a fax machine. Histories are going to get faxed through. We'll be faxing the order through to our supplier. And I was like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> we need to go back to the 90s and give them their fax machine back. Like, what right. are we doing with a fax machine <laughs> in 2013? And, so, you know, eventually I put my foot down and said, we're not using this anymore. Um, so I think, um, if you're, if you're in one of these practices where, um, God love them, God love them, the people running the practice are still using fax machines and, you know, dated technologies. Um, it's potentially cause they're really scared and they just need mm-hmm. somebody to say, you know what, I can help us introduce a system right. where we start using the scanner and e-filing and, you know, these gadgets. And I know they seem scary, but I'm going to hold your hand and we can do an overhaul. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, honestly, the, the veterinary technician or the veterinary nurse can be a, a driving force behind that. And, yeah. you know, that's a, it's another way to just kind of, you know, bring value to the practice to increase your value and so on and so forth. I, I completely agree. Yeah. So go gently, but, you know, you can suggest if there is a fax machine in sight, you know, we can talk about ways to move away from that and towards yes. other technologies. Yes, yes, <laughs> now, just before we take a quick break, can you tell me about a time when you're able to turn defeat into victory? This could be in a personal or professional capacity. That's interesting. You know, I, I can't really think off the top of my head any time that I've had what I would call major defeat. Um, you know, I, I do remember when I was going through the specialty process, I remember it being really difficult, um, but I had a really great support system, um, and thankfully I was able to pass the test the first time. But that, I think to me, like, that's that's the biggest thing where it wasn't necessarily defeated. Certainly I felt defeated at times just trying to study and and what I felt like, you know, was keep up with, with what my study group was doing and what have you. But um, it wasn't necessarily that I, you know, was defeated at any time. But I think that's the biggest thing to me that, especially from a professional standpoint, that was like a, a great victory for me was, was going through that process. And, and actually, if, if, if anything, sticking through that entire 
year of collecting cases and year long application process and then studying for the months and waiting for the you know the the exam that's only offered once a year and uh, finally getting through all that I think was the was one thing that comes to mind that w while I was never necessarily defeated it was it felt like a huge victory um, to go through that you know what ended up being a couple of year process to go from you know un uh, unspecialized to VTS technician that was certainly uh, to this point um, what I would still call my my greatest professional achievement and just not giving up and just, yeah absolutely it being just persistence hard, yeah. perseverance and, mm. and you know just sticking to it and um, you know, I think probably earlier on in my career, certainly earlier on in my life, I, I might have bailed on it or, or not followed through with it or, or what have you. But, um, you know, just sticking it out and giving it everything I had for that, that period of time with the studying and everything else, I think is still to this day, you know, in terms of professional achievements, it's, it's number one. That's it. Just, that's when you like to say just three more clicks, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> the three more clicks mentality. Yes, set in. absolutely. <laughs> and there it is. That's like, <laughs> that's probably it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, uh, we might take a quick break. Are you happy if we come back in a sec? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilkeen. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilkeen contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilkeen probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Hey, Kat Robinson here. You know me from Radio Vet Nurse, but I'm also the co-founder, co-owner and general manager of ReadyVet. ReadyVet is a veterinary surgery in far north Queensland. My husband's a vet and we really, really, really appreciate our vet nurses. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm kind of passionate about nursing too. So when I told Matt I wanted to start Radio Vet Nurse to celebrate vet nurses and tell our story, we agreed that ReadyVet would make this financially possible. So thanks, ReadyVet. That's all. Carry on. Welcome back, Jeff. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of veterinary nursing or being a veterinary technician? Uh, great question. I, I think for me, it's just absorb everything that you can. Um, you know, there's there's so much that we do in practice that is the how we do things, whether, you know, again, just starting out, maybe how we draw blood or how we place an IV catheter or take radiographs or those kinds of things. But on the flip side of that is the why and you know why are we doing this in this pet when we didn't do it to the last pet and and mm. just soak up as much as you can because that that clinic that you're at now or that situation that you're in now um, isn't necessarily what your career is going to look like and and you can always take little things and add to them or subtract from them throughout your career and, and continue to build on that and you know, I, th I think the education is really important, but, you know, just just kind of taking all of that in and saying, okay, this I'm going to keep and, and this I'm going to, 
to maybe bring to this clinic down the road, but, but just continue to grow and, and just never stop learning, I think is, is really what it boils down to from, from wherever you start. If you feel like you're, you've kind of peaked, don't be afraid to, to look at that next opportunity or find your niche and say, you know, I really like this area. Maybe it's ophthalmology, maybe it's neurology. I wonder if I should look into just doing that or, you know, just always kind of keep your mind open and just kind of keep trying to fill it with with information because there is always 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 more to learn and on that note what advice would you give to someone struggling with their studies oh yeah um you know i being on the the professor side of this for a little bit um you know I would say just uh, it's a very difficult conversation, but but talk to your professors because I mean certainly we can we can see you know when maybe you've done well on exams and and you have a bad one and we think maybe it's just a blip or or you're you know you're struggling throughout a term um, and we can certainly initiate a conversation, but there are plenty of people as well that get really good grades or are, are doing really well in class, but we don't actually know that they're struggling to keep up or, or, you know, they're balancing all of this stuff outside of life. Um, and, and the, the reality is, is, is that when, you know, when you go to school for this, you're, you're of college age, you're an adult, we all have things going on in our lives. Like, don't be afraid to reach out to your professors or school administration, whoever it may be, and say, I'm, I'm having these challenges, like what kind of resources are available to me? You know, what have you done with other students in the past? Don't be afraid to initiate that conversation. It's not like the school is going to drop you or, you know, hold you back or necessarily anything like that. But we can't help if we're not involved in the conversation. So I would just say if, if you're struggling, whether you're struggling to keep up or um, maybe you're not learning um, you know, the, the way that you feel like you should be because everybody learns a little bit differently. Don't be afraid to speak up to your professor or your school administration because for a lot of people, we can we can kind of see pretty easily, you know, who might be struggling or maybe just isn't putting in, you know, what they need to put in and they just need to alter their study habits. But there's a lot of people that struggle that do get through that we just we just never know. And mm. so, you know, just, just in anything, in anything in life, in this field, whatever it may be, don't be afraid to reach out for help. That's right. And that goes as well with telling your, your boss or your manager or your supervisor, Hey, this thing's happening. And, mm-hmm. and that can shed a lot of light on, Oh, okay. It seemed like this person was off or team members have been coming to me saying this person is off. And, um, it sometimes can, can help to understand, okay, it's because this thing's happening. So yeah, don't be afraid to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear, uh, whether from colleagues or clients that you think should be replaced with more useful or modern information? (laughs) There are so many, but for some reason, one that sticks in my mind, uh, there's a very commonly utilized uh, veterinary technician book in the States. And I don't know if, if you guys use it in Australia, but it's uh, the, the editor is, is uh, McKernan, Dennis McKernan, and it's, I think it's just called like Clinical Applications for Veterinary Technicians or something along those lines. But there's a, there's a chapter in there about toxicities and one of the methods for inducing emesis, um, if you don't have drugs like apomorphine or, or specific emetic agents, one mm-hmm. of the things that it says you can do is bolus cefazolin. Oh, 
and I, I just feel like that's as we were talking about earlier that's straight out of probably 1974 and we 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 don't even need to print that as a viable option <laughs> yeah so what year would the text be published uh so this was um there was a new edition that was published while i was teaching within the last handful of years yeah uh, so so i mean the the, the edition that i'm saying from is probably maybe 2012 or 13. Um, yeah. And there's probably been a new edition since, and I don't know if it's still in that or not. But I remember when this one came out, there was a like things we want to change about this textbook. And that was a big one because mm. it was like, we, we, there's far better ways to, to do this now in 2000, you know, 12 or 13 or whatever it was. So, <laughs> so yeah, sometimes we... the time lag with uh, textbooks catching up is um, crazy. Like the, the British vet nursing textbook that I have um, from when I started my certificate for in veterinary nursing, which must've been 2012. Um, it in the, in the chapter on um, neonatal resuscitation, it says swing the neonate. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, and it was only when I saw Amy Newfield at conference and she was like, do not swing the neonate that I was like, oh, that's crazy because my book says to do that. Yeah. And that's a yeah. pretty current book. So, um, but also within inducing um, emesis, we, we hear <laughs> anecdotally from a lot of clients uh, who are ringing from, you know, remote areas and they may have, you know, a dog that's, that's uh, ingested rat bait and they, they're going to take an hour to get in or, you know, it's, it's 10 mm -hmm. o'clock at night and they don't want to come in for an after hours. They, they talk about um, dishwashing liquid. <laughs> oh, wow. And we we're like, wow. nope, nope, I wouldn't be <laughs> squirting any dishwashing liquid down your pet's throat. I would be coming in uh, and we can induce vomiting or, you right. know, it may be too late. So, yeah, yeah there's yeah. Um, all kinds of theories on that one. Sure. There, there's so many out there that, <laughs> that need to be dispelled. <laughs> to make, to, to be clear, no Vaseline, no dishwashing fluid. Right. Agreed. hundred percent. Excellent. Now, how do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? And if you're feeling overwhelmed about life or work, what do you do? It's a very timely question because, um, you know, our podcast, we've had uh, throughout the series, several different guests come on and talk about these very specific topics. And um, there, there's a lot that I learned in listening to them um, talk about these things that I never knew or never really thought about for myself. And, and I actually just had a, a really difficult time, um, probably about, I'll, I'll say maybe six, eight weeks ago, where I kind of actually hit my breaking point. And, you know, I had listened to, again, you know, leaders in our field talk about these things. And I started to kind of examine my own situation. And I, I, I got to work on my way to work one day, I, I was driving and on the highway and I was like, I'm actually not okay. Uh, and mm. I talked to my supervisor that day, um, about because I'm at a big enough clinic, we have an, uh, an EAP or an employee assistance program. Yeah. Um, and I reached out, you know, I, I asked her and said, Hey, I'm not in a good mental space. Um, how do I reach out to these people? And she gave me the brochure and I, I called the next morning, um, when I was actually off again, I put it off for a day, but you know, and just kind of started talking to somebody, um, because there was so much that I, I didn't realize that I was holding on to, you know, the, the big thing for me, um, when we talk about burnout or compassion fatigue was, was secondary traumatic stress. And I didn't really realize I didn't really think I had very much of that factoring into the equation, but then I kind of started to look through, look at it through a different lens and realize there's actually 
a lot of my coworkers' struggles that I carry with me. Um, yeah. And, you know, especially again in a, in a very high volume academic environment, and I'm working with interns that are stressed to the max, residents that are, you know, a step beyond that. Uh, my wife is a new veterinarian in work, you know, doing her own internship. Um, there was a lot that I wasn't necessarily experiencing, but I was seeing people in the profession that I have given the last 25 years of my life to struggling with it. And that really started to hit me was that not only am I not okay, but I, I really kind of don't like in some ways where the profession is headed. And that was yeah. what was really weighing me down. And so I reached out to the, to the employee assistance program and kind of started to, to actually do some of the things that our guests had talked about and um, downloaded the Calm app and the Headspace app and tried to, to really start taking some time um, and just sitting alone with my thoughts and not necessarily filling them with a, uh, a ball game, which think, you know, kind of thankfully right now I haven't been able to do anyway, but, um, <laughs> you know, and actually thinking about things and saying, you know, why do I have this reaction to this and why am I feeling this way? Um, and it's actually been really important. And I, and I will say 100%, I mean, I, I had this kind of moment on a Wednesday while I was driving to work where I was like, I am not okay. And, and that weekend, that Saturday, I noticed I was having an outbreak of shingles. Uh, oh, wow. and, and, and I 100% attribute it to uh, work stress. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, uh, probably two months ago now. And then, you know, after I got over shingles, I, I actually contracted coronavirus. What? Um, did you? Yeah. Yes, I did. And have got, had very mild symptoms. Thankfully, I got over that. But, you huh. know, I honestly, I, I, I think about this stuff and, you know, whatever else. But I, I, I do think that there was so much stress that I just didn't realize that was there. Yeah. And, you know, that's not necessarily my job. Like I have an active role in that, but there was just so much I wasn't considering that was going on that was affecting me. And I felt like that was really important to just kind of take a look at and say, what do I actually want to, to do right now? Or, or how mm. do I, you know, how do I feel and why do I feel that way? And, and so just kind of reaching out, um, was, was really important. And honestly hearing, thankfully, um, you know, some of our guests talk about these experiences that they've had or these resources that are out there, um, was really kind of eye opening to me. And, and once I started kind of thinking about that, I was like, I, I, I'm actually somebody that needs this too. So yeah, 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 that's right. And you can't just say, well, since I'm in academia and I'm not on this, um, so-called frontline all of the time, then maybe I'm not experiencing anything, but I think right. you raised a great point with the EAP because I guess I'm the same as you in that I'm not so much face-to-face with clients like I am. You know, I, I do shifts uh, in the clinic, but I'm still exposed to the same secondary traumatic stress because if a staff member is having an issue, then I'm the one that they will come to or myself or my husband, but it will eventually come to me to handle. So having an EAP is great not only for the individual staff member but also for the person that it filters up to because you can refer people on to professionals rather than trying to carry this load and I'll put a link to um, some of the things you mentioned too like the Calm app and the Headspace app I find exercise has really helped me in the last few months as well because I guess uh, I was I think we've had a mental health epidemic worldwide due to the um, Mm -hmm. coronavirus lockdown too I mean 
so many of our coping mechanisms have been pulled from underneath us and we've had extra you know pressures and stresses at work but um i'll put a link to who we use for an eap we've just switched to um uprise on the recommendation of um harry and natalie from the australian college of veterinary nursing and they um it's an app that our staff members have on their phone that that Mm. sends a questionnaire out every couple of weeks saying you know rate on a one to one to five how you feeling about this or this or this and it will actually detect the early signs of stress and anxiety and and say this is how you scored. Maybe you need to um, watch this webinar about how to practice mindfulness or maybe you need a session with one of our um, coaches or one of our therapists. So I think um, to have some sort of proactive EAP can really help or even just an EAP that you use in a reactive sense like you did, like going yeah. forward and putting your hand up and saying, how do I find these people? Right. Agreed. And, you know, one other thing, too, is is on staff at our hospital, we have a, a licensed social worker. Um, oh, and he co- Yeah. And he comes from from human medicine. He worked in human hospitals for about 25 years before he came to us. And he's mostly there for the clients that are, are you know, having difficult, you know, financial decisions and, and coming, you know, difficulty coming to terms with the decisions they have to make for their pets. And so that's like his primary role. And, and he's just kind of starting to really branch into, you know, not necessarily problems that plague the hospital, but, you know, just again, that, that idea of, you know, of, of these, uh, interns and residents and staff that are struggling with all of these different things as well. And so, you know, he's becoming, I don't want to say more available because he always has been, but it's more of a, a, a um, you know, a recognized thing that he's somebody else that's, that's physically there in the building that we can just go talk to. Or if, if it's, you know, Hey, I have this problem, like how can I approach it or how can I, you know, work to, um, you know, to come to a solution and, and those kinds of things. So that I think helps a lot as well. And the reality is on the other side of that is the person that is seeking that help also has to be willing to have that conversation and, you know, act, you know, willing to be vulnerable, willing to say like, I, I'm actually not okay and, and get out of it, whatever they want. And, you know, that's, that's still something that's really, really difficult at times. But, um, you know, I think with an EAP uh, or a social worker, if you have one on staff, if you work at one of those kinds of clinics, the, the thing to remember is it's confidential. It's not going to get back to your manager. It's not going to get back to your practice owner. That's right. Like, mm. don't let that be a reason you don't reach out or, or seek help. Um, and it's difficult to do, but, um, but absolutely, like, don't be afraid to, to reach out because, um, even, you know, there are some clinics I know that require, you know, if they have a social worker on staff, they might require them to check in with the interns or the residents on like a, a given timetable. But again, if that person isn't ready to have that conversation, we, we're pretty good at putting up armor and shields and, and mm. putting on airs that we're okay. And, and, you yeah. know, we're really, really not. And so that conversation will only go as far as you're willing to take it. And, you know, it's 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 really difficult to do but just don't let it get to that point where you're at that breaking point where you think i got to do something now because the alternatives are 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 really really scary that's right yeah. and if you if you're a manager or a practice manager or working at a clinic within australia where social workers are not well i don't know of any clinics in australia that have them amy newfield introduced me to the whole concept yeah. in her episode but you know if you're working at a practice you can still 
well, you can still push the importance of having an EAP to the decision makers. And, and, you know, while they do cost money, they do help retain people in this industry where we have this retention crisis. Um, But also, you know, we, you can ask the question, you can check in with people and and raise it. Like we have a a regular standard question on our six monthly staff self appraisals that says, what are you doing for your mental health and your wellness? Mm -hmm. Um, And that alone can prompt people to think, huh, well, what am I doing? Um, maybe I should be going to yoga once a week or maybe I should be downloading the Calm app or, you know, maybe I should be doing the webinar on the EAP. So I think you're right. We need to have these conversations. And and one thing that you said was that, that you were thinking about was some sort of rising awareness that you weren't sure if you were happy with where the industry was heading. And there was there was a TV show in Australia a few months ago called Insight that had an episode on um, – on vets and veterinary um, well-being and and mental health issues, and particularly about about issues with clients being aggressive or yelling or you know physically assaulting veterinary staff, and I think it stirred up and triggered um, a lot of emotion in a lot of people. Like in the end, I couldn't watch it, and I know other people who started to watch it but turned it off halfway through. Um, so so yeah, there is that overarching question of why are we heading in this direction and and what can we do about it? So there are so many levels to this. Yeah, there really are. And, you know, in in all the other challenges of the field, um, it just, it's one more thing to to kind of think about. But if we don't, if we don't address it, if we don't talk about it, um, then people are going to, you know, people will just leave the field and and go do different things that have better work-life balance and and all of this, these things that, and these are like, you know, potentially really good employees, veterinary technicians or nurses that, that made, you know, could go on to do really great things in the field, but, but we Mm. lose them early on because it, in, you know, they're maybe working at a clinic or they're doing one different one thing that might just not be sustainable. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. My next question, this, this, what we're discussing might be your answer, or you might have another idea, but what's the main area of our industry that needs attention or improvement? Uh, I think, you know, I mean, aside from, aside from mental health, um, in my short time in, in academia, I think the big thing is that there are what I perceive a lot of uh, um, issues in the field, especially that we as veterinary technicians face that can be solved while the veterinarians are in veterinary school. Um, You know, there's a lot that comes with practice ownership that they don't necessarily learn in school. And of course, not every graduate goes on to own their own clinic, but how to utilize their staff, how to Mm. support their staff, different things. And, I feel like there are there are a lot of and, and again I've only worked at, at one university so maybe not all of them are like this but I do feel like there are several things that you know just seeing in in my wife after her education and what she's been getting through her internship and and others you know along the way there's a lot that we don't teach veterinary students that would help them in their career. And mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of that. Mm. Um, but there are a lot of things, you know, clinic dynamics and different things as well that I think we could really look into and, and just kind of better prepare them to get assimilated into what clinic life is like. And the same thing kind of goes on our end as well that, um, you know, in school we learn a lot of the why, in practice we learn the how, but we don't necessarily, I don't think, 
in a lot of ways do a great job of meshing the two and and you know learning to work as a team and and those kinds of things so I think that's for me you know something that I don't really know how to to address it or work on it or solve it but I think that's one thing that we kind of need to work on is, is when we have these students, whether it's a veterinary student or a veterinary technician or nurse student, that's when they're the most moldable. That's when they're the most, you know, open and, and ready to like, you know, receive whatever we're willing to give them. And, and if, if we can kind of give them better information in some areas, I think that will make a huge difference. I totally agree. And I think what you're touching on there is like the skill is emotional intelligence, and, you know, understanding that when you're out in practice, yes, you're going to have to have clinical skills and knowledge and, and whatnot, but you're also going to have to work with other humans and mm-hmm. get them to help you. And certainly my husband as a vet has worked in practices where, you know, he's running out of what he needs in the consult room or it needs turning over and he will ask someone for help. Um, and have a nurse say, no, I'm busy and, you know, but, but not, but just be busy doing something that can be left. And, and so for him as a new grad, he didn't have the skills to know, well, how do I, how do I make it so that this person understands what I'm doing and I understand what they're doing and we can, we can meet each other's needs without having to have this conflict or without me asking or her asking, you know? So, um, I think that, that, that is, um, that's a layer that can really, um, boost your ability to provide good client service, good patient care, because you have this cohesive team that understands what each other's doing. And it's, it's bloody hard work achieving that. It is. It is. And, you know, to, to be honest, I I feel like a lot of people, and and I, I, I don't mean to stereotype here, but in some ways I'm going to, that there are a lot of people in this field that are in this field because they gravitate towards animals because they're not the best at interacting with other humans. Maybe they've been bullied. Maybe they've been, they've been on the receiving end of, of different things there. Maybe they've been viewed as different throughout their life, but they've gravitated to animals because they're not judged by the animals. But then Mm. there may be not, you know, a, a lot of us in this field aren't, you know, we're introverted by nature. A lot of us, you know, there's just, we're not that great many of us at interacting with other humans and that's ultimately what gets us through the day is Mm. you know whether it's talking to clients and going over discharge instructions or or being able to actually obtain a history and ask the right questions interacting with your coworkers or your support staff or whoever it may be that's ultimately what it comes down to and and i i do think there's a little bit of a disconnect there and and again i obviously not everybody falls under that umbrella but i do think there are a significant number of us that fall into that that we kind of got into this field because we like working with animals because we don't like other humans <laughs> and but we mm-hmm. but we we have to interact with other humans to get through the day so you're like what the client doesn't just put the animal through the hole in the door and with a little <laughs> right. note attached what i'm gonna right. see a client right right <laughs> and what my co-worker doesn't just know what i need by osmosis right right aren't yeah, we just can. gonna text yeah, can't they just, yes, absolutely. Can't we just have like a group <laughs> hospital text where we, you know, get everything figured out there and let's go just about communicate our day. via WhatsApp, guys? Let's just <laughs> right. all be in separate rooms unless we need some, you know, restraint. So, yeah, right. I say that all the time. You don't want to generalize, but it's true. We're all like, ah, oh, great. We'll be able to work with animals. And we won't have to deal with those 
pesky humans. And then, right. oh my God, this is just so complex. I am dealing with multiple humans on multiple levels. Right, right. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, emotional intelligence, intelligence, I definitely agree with that one. And I was going to, before we wrapped up, um, I initially was going to to just say we were talking at the moment in late July because we always have to timestamp nowadays with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And, and I was going to check in with how it's it's affecting your your world at the moment and your career, but I didn't actually know that you had contracted it too. So um, how how is that all going for you? How is it affecting your work life? Um, obviously, you've recovered from it as well. Um, just to check in on how, how that is going in your particular state in America. Yeah. Um, so New England and the states, for those of you that are in Australia that uh, may not know, the states that make up New England, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut um, – we have actually done pretty well in terms of managing it and kind of, I'll say, like getting back to some semblance of, of what it used to look like prior to coronavirus. Um, there are many states in the United States right now. I mean, I, I think our country in a lot of ways is kind of the laughing stock of the world when it comes to coronavirus right now. But, um, you know, in, in, in a more micro level in terms of my job, um, they have been very proactive about it, which has been wonderful to see. Anybody that has symptoms, um, I mean, they are, they are, you know, I'm not going to say taken off the floor, but they are allowed to take sick time and, you know, go get tested and wait a certain number of days until, you know, symptoms reside or there's a negative test or what have you. Um, and that's been really refreshing to see. We actually have an app, um, that we, you know, we take our temperature before we go to work and we have to log in, you know, do we have any symptoms, what our temperature is, et cetera, so that, you know, we can, you know, keep each other healthy. To my knowledge, to this point, I'm the only one, uh, at work that has tested positive, um, and I don't know where or why, um, we had some, we had some family members visit and they had it as well. My wife never got it. So, wow. um, we probably all got it at the same place while they were here doing something. I don't know where or what, but, um, but thankfully we all had, uh, very mild symptoms and we've all recovered and, and what have you. But, um, I will say that, uh, that Tufts university and, and my job has been really proactive. They were really supportive of, you know, while I was waiting for test results, there was no pressure to come back to work. Um, there was no, you know, there, it was basically like, make sure you're okay. Let us know if you need anything. Don't come back to work until it's safe for you and it's safe for us. And that was, that was really refreshing to see. There was no pressure. Whereas, you know, my wife who of course never tested positive, but her work was on the very opposite end of that of, of, you know, she kind of got some pushback and I won't get too much into that, but she, Mm -hmm. she had a hard time even because she had tested negative, even though I was positive, she had a hard time getting time away. Um, and so, you know, I think where we're, where we're at right now and, and my little state of Rhode Island, we're doing pretty well. Um, and we haven't, you know, we've certainly had people go out of work for testing that thankfully tested negative that, you know, had symptoms of, of coronavirus, but never tested positive. But, um, but yeah, it definitely hit home for me. Um, but thankfully it was very mild and, and after about five days or so, um, my symptoms subsided and, and just had to wait for a negative test and then I was able to go back to work. And this, this week, this week here now, um, end of July was my first week back to work. 
I'm so glad to hear that you're recovered and all is well. My husband, when we recorded the big group episode, said when you do a check-in episode again in you know six months or whatever, half of you will probably have had it because at the time we just didn't know what was going to happen with the virus and I think we thought a whole lot more people would, would get it and I was like, no, I didn't think yeah. any of us would get it but there you go. Um, and I, meanwhile, I'm the one who sounds like I have coronavirus <laughs> right now, but I assure you, I just have three-year-old who goes to daycare virus, which means <laughs> every respiratory virus every other week. So, um, yeah, well, I'm yeah. really glad to hear that, um, that you guys are going okay where you are and that, that you're all recovered and that your wife is well. And it's been such a pleasure catching up with you. Absolutely. Just to, to finish up or well, to finish up firstly I just want to point people again to to listen to your show because it's really great and you're doing I'm going to say something sort of similar to what I'm doing in in talking about um these these issues of of what's happening with the industry and um and and you know how we might address some of these really pressing issues like like wellness and that sort of thing um but it's also just a really good laugh and you guys have the cafe and you've got the tap room so sometimes you're having a coffee and sometimes a beer and it's just a nice social kind of relaxed show um that that I really enjoy so please check out uh, Vet, Vet Tech Cafe Thank you, thank you. And, yeah, and we, if you could, we certainly have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> it's good. You've got to, hey. And if you could reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in the industry, who would it be and what would you say? Uh, so I'm going to go to the the, veter the very first veterinarian that I ever worked with, uh, Dr. Norman Seat back in Southern California. Um, you know, he was the, the veterinarian at the hospital where I did my externship as uh, the the high school extern um and he's still one of my very good close personal friends to this day 25 years later and i still work relief at his clinic from time to time um and and i mean i remember my first day there and and so on and so forth but anyway i he trained many of us we were all veterinary assistants at the time none of us were licensed um but he took the time to you know teach us many things that you would actually learn in school um, not just how to do things, but why we are doing things. And at the time, this was 1995, I don't think there were a lot of veterinaries, veterinarians or veterinary clinics that were doing it that way. Um, and so he really laid a foundation in me to, to actually like seek out education and, and the why. And I would just say thank you. Like it, it was a, a blast working for him. It was hard to leave that clinic on a full-time level to go pursue something else, but he was completely supportive of that idea and and knew that I had kind of peaked there, if you will, that uh, that I just, you know, there wasn't a whole lot more for me to do and I, I was enjoying this other facet of things. So it wasn't just the teaching me, but it was the support in going off and doing something else. And he's let me come back and, you know, train his staff on different things and talk about different things over the years. And, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people in this field that don't get to have that kind of relationship with a veterinarian or practice owner or practice manager. And, um, I know I'm very lucky in that respect. And so I would just say absolutely thank you because I mean, I, I tell him this all the time that I would not be where I was today if he hadn't given me so many chances when I was younger or given me all that guidance or all of that education, um, kind of on the fly. And, and, um, you know, I, I absolutely, I mean, there's, a very strong possibility I wouldn't even be in this field if I had gotten assigned an externship at a different clinic. Um, and so, you know, that just the way that everything fell, I think in my career goes back to that. 
I love that answer. And I think that as much as we can learn from each other, if we can find a a vet who can be a mentor, then there's just so much we can learn. And sometimes it feels counterintuitive, I think, for vets who can be very time poor uh, and and think, okay, if we just quickly do this, this will be a five-minute exercise. Whereas if I stop and explain and whatnot, it might take 25 minutes and I don't have 25 minutes. But I guess why it's counterintuitive is that if you spend 25 minutes doing it three times, you know, the next three times that that this um, arises, then the fourth time and the fifth time, the sixth time, that person can go do it on their own or, you know, with another staff member and teach them as well. So, um, you know, if you can stop, whether it's the clean path that you're doing or applying the bandage or, or whatever it is and say, hey, come over here. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Then, you know, you can be offloading those jobs and we can be incre- increasing the role and the reach um, and the job satisfaction of technicians and nurses. So I love those vets who do that. And I know vets are time poor, but if vets can do that, please do. It makes all the difference. Right. 100%. And I, I would say too, that's something, you know, absolutely that comes back to the the veterinary school education because you know as veterinary students they're they're trying to do all of these things to learn and so there's so many things that I used to do as a veterinary technician when I worked at emergency practice that I don't get to do now in academia because the veterinary students are learning how to do it um, and so you know then it's hard to then once you've kind of gotten used to doing things for yourself and again, you go out into practice and you're still used to doing things for yourself, offload, as you say, those things to your staff mm. and involve them and teach them and let them do it and let them actually work for you and continue to work and build and grow as a team. Um, that's difficult to do. I, I completely empathize with that. But again, if you if you do it, as you said, you know, once or twice or three times, then hopefully from there on out, that particular thing, you won't have to anymore. And that's one thing you can take off your plate. And, you know, there's so many times I say in academia, like to the veterinary students, go, go learn how to do doctor things. Don't, mm. don't waste your time learning how to do technician things, because when mm. you get out of here, somebody else is going to do that, but nobody else can go do that thing. Mm. And so, yeah. And I think there's that universality of, of the veterinary nurse and technician experience and the vet experience. So, um, you know, you may be over there in Stephen King country and I'm in far North Queensland, but we have um, the same, I guess, the same thing that we're trying to drive home, which is let us do the nursing and the technician stuff, go do the doctor stuff and we'll all be able to get way more done. And, and then that can contribute to all of our work satisfaction and our overall wellness, stress reduction. Um, I think it's a, it's a great thing that we're all pushing for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I know you have another interview to get to now, so. <laughs> yes, have to, um, have to go record one of my own. <laughs> yeah, what a marathon. Um, I'm going to enjoy my house while it's child-free for a little while. My husband's got the kids at the park, um, so I'll pretend to be a real grown-up. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, for having me on. I it's 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 great to be on this side of the microphone. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah. But but really truly enjoyed the the conversation and, and catching up and and you know sharing our different experiences and, and and honestly so much in common because you know wherever you are you know whether it's Australia the UK or Canada or the US like the I think the a lot of the issues that veterinary technicians and nurses face are are. The very similar, if not the same. 
And that's what all these podcasts are showing me. I'm listening and I'm I'm hearing the same sort of themes. So I think it's great that we're all on the right track and that we're all um, ultimately progressing and making change and making a difference. So it's all, to my mind, really positive. We might be looking at issues that we can improve, but I don't feel that it's a negative or it's a complaining or anything. I feel like it's very empowering. And I'm glad that um, that you and Dave are on the same journey in, in you know, putting these issues in people's ear holes. And please keep going. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we absolutely will. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Have a great night. You or too. Or morning, I guess, or day for <laughs> it's you. It's morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.